podcast family, it's Miller. We love you. We pray for you. Thanks for tuning in. And we want to continue to encourage you just to get into the word. We're doing NT24. If you haven't thrown in on that, we're walking through the New Testament in 24 days. You can go to your Bible app, your version app, go to plans, put up room in there, and uh, our plan will pop up. You can get notifications. Uh, we have daily devotionals from our staff. So throw in. It's fun. It's awesome. So many people are uh, reading through the New Testament with us. So hop in. Uh, today's teaching is from a series I'm doing on women. This is the second sermon on that. And I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to focus on verses 26 through 40. And Paul's addressing order in the assembly. And he has some instructions for women uh, in Corinth. And we look at what he's addressing culturally and what trans sends that culture to 2024. How are we to apply uh, what Paul was speaking to them uh, today? And um, and so we wrestle through this text to try to give as much context as I can for the text and then plausible outcomes or views based on what Paul is saying. So this affects women. It has for uh, centuries and um, want to do this justice and so i pray for you that you'll humbly approach these texts as we attempted to so buckle up here we go love you that draw so cool well good evening how's everyone yeah y'all buckled up ready to go wasn't um I just, I want to welcome anyone if it's their first time. You got a good taste of what we love to do. Um, we love to worship Jesus. We have a prayer room that's open Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. Every day people are in here praying. The majority of it is live. And I think what happens Monday through Friday impacts what happens on the weekend. And I think it's the most important thing that we're doing. And so to get in the rhythm and flow of our community, I really encourage you to pick a set, find a set, find a team. Um, Over time, you could serve on one, even if you're not a musician or singer. I've been serving on one for years just as an intercessor. Um, I didn't think I was an intercessor until I signed up and said I'll show up at a set and start praying. And so it's just a great way to uh, engage others, engage the Lord, and to put that in your week, whether it's once a week, multiple times a week. Um, Don't. Don't excuse it for not getting a job. Please go get a job. Please have a life outside of here. But this is a great place of coming in and going out. That's why we put it on the door. We come in to go out. 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 We come in to worship to go out to witness. We come in to worship to go out to witness. We come in to worship to go out to witness. So we witness the one that we're beholding in this room. And uh, we have quite a history of prayer and worship now for 14 years, and so um, I really invite you into that. Another way that you can grow in your relationship with Jesus is to read the Word of God. Uh, We're in the middle of NT24. Today is 13, day 13. Uh, We are reading Galatians and Ephesians today. It's eight, six and six, 12 chapters. And I really encourage you, if you're not doing it, hop in. Uh, Just come on in, the water's warm, there's plenty of room. Uh, you can go to your Bible app and uh, put in upper room in the plans. We actually partnered with the Bible app version, 
And every morning we will send you uh, the readings and in the readings will be a devotional from someone on our staff or an elder. This morning was Jane Spring. But we are all reading the word. There's thousands of people that are reading through the New Testament with us. We do a Bible study Wednesday from 12 to 1. So we want to invite you to that Zoom call. You can check our socials for information on that. But this is just a great way to start the new year. You need a personal relationship with the word of God. Just listening to preaching isn't enough. Just listening to guys talk about Jesus on YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, it's not enough. It's, it's not enough. It's just information. But when you come to the word and you pray and you ask the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and revelation, he illuminates the word. And it's a way to know the Lord. And I am more convicted of that than ever because I've been reading the New Testament with you guys. And my hunger and love for the word has grown and I wanna keep doing it. I don't know what we're gonna roll out after this, but we're gonna roll out something. Uh, I think studying the Bible in community is powerful. And so join us, hop in, again, plenty of room. You don't get a badge for reading all of them, so don't feel bad that you're just hopping in halfway through, just plug into the word of God. And it's the fun part, it's Paul's epistles. It's, 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 it's tomorrow is Colossians. Colossians is one of my favorite books. You're gonna love Colossians, it's great. Colossians one, you may not get past it. It's just beautiful. So I really want to put the word of God before you, young people. You need to be in the word. Amen and amen. So there's my rant. There's my soapbox. I'm going to get off of it now, and I'm going to get on another one. No. Um, I, want to, I want to humbly come before you uh, to present tonight's uh, topic. It's, it's uh, the second installment of uh, I don't know how long we'll be in this subject. At least I'll, you know, we have various teachers, but I'm going to... I'm going to anchor down here for a little bit, and it's, it's on women, and it's on women, uh, God's design for women, it's on uh, women's roles in the church, women's, uh, uh, you know, it's half the body of Christ, and I feel passionate about this subject, didn't realize I would get as passionate as I have, don't know of a, a subject that I've studied more for uh, in regards to a series that we're doing. Uh, I've spent, I don't know how many hours uh, reading, researching, praying, just humbly coming before the Lord, because I don't want to show up to the word with biases. I don't want to bypass text based on what I want the text to say. I really want the text to inform me. I want the text to guide me. I want it to guide our leadership, our eldership. We're really praying through this topic collectively. And so I'm presenting some of these truths uh, tonight. There's a note sheet behind me that you'll see. You can get your phones out, click it, and these are my preaching notes. It's a little condensed version. Uh, but take these notes and take them with you, study them, search them out. Uh, this is a helpful tool, again, to serve you and to serve you as a disciple of Jesus. Because I'm assuming everyone's a disciple in this room since uh, Chase gave the call and no one raised their hand. Uh, if you're not, hopefully you won't leave here without giving your life to Jesus. So as a disciple of Jesus, though, we need to be under the word of God. And so... Um, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to dive into the topic. So, Holy Spirit, I, I ask for your guidance. I ask for your lordship tonight. I ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know Jesus, we can grow in understanding his heart around this topic, God. And I pray, Lord, uh, for any that have been hurt by this topic, Lord, that you would, uh, you would heal those hurts, that you would uh, correct whatever needs to be corrected. Lord, we humbly come before you and ask for you to speak to us. Your word is living and active. And so we approach it expecting it, Lord, to cut, expecting it to mend, expecting it to heal, expecting it to divide, expecting it to do what only it can inside of us. And so everyone say, Lord Jesus, speak to us through your word. 
in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, I, uh, last week, uh, opened up the series and talked about God's design for women. We looked at Genesis 2.18, and the first word to describe Eve uh, was in Genesis 2.18. And that word, it's a Hebrew word, it's ezer. Say ezer. Now, ezer means helper. Uh, that's how it's translated in most uh, modern-day translations. It means helper. And that isn't very helpful in understanding why Eve's first description was to be a helper. And so um, to understand what that means, you look at the word ezer and you do a word search and you understand how else is it used in scripture. It's used 21 times in scripture, twice it's used towards Eve, and then the other 19 times it's used in a military conflict or in, in a place where someone is in a conflict, they're facing something that they need help for in order to overcome or in order to advance or in order to protect um, sometimes it was used in the context of a nation, a foreign nation coming to assist Israel to fight another nation that was stronger than them. Uh, but 16 times this word Ezer is used for the Lord himself. So Psalms 121, I look to the hills from where my Ezer comes from, where my help comes from. The help that uh, David was speaking about was Yahweh. It was God himself being David's Ezer. And so God uh, is known as an Ezer throughout the Old Testament. And so we looked at that, and it's in the context of God looking at Adam and going, oh my goodness, it's not good that you're alone. <laughs> it's not good that you're alone. Everything else in here is good. I've pronounced it good. But the one thing that's not good is Adam is alone. And I started wrestling with the Lord. What wasn't good about Adam being alone? And we thought, and I think it could be companionship, that there was no one that was like him. As he named the animals, there was no one that, that, was, that was like him, that, 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 that was a partner, was a friend. Um, and I think that, that is a part of this. But I think one of the main reasons he needed help is because there was an enemy in the garden. And Adam wasn't to face that enemy alone. And so my, my framework last week is that Eve uh, was not designed to serve Adam, but to serve with Adam. And that would include serving Adam, but they were to serve together. They were, they were in partnership. There was this uh, union and oneness that the two of them had. When, when Adam awakes and sees that God has made Eve from, her, from his rib, he says, oh my gosh, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. There's something about the two becoming one. There's something about harmony, union, in the context of marriage, and we looked through that. Two, two individuals submitting to the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another makes a wonderful partnership, makes a wonderful marriage. Uh, so if you need review on that, please go look at it. Uh, but tonight, I want to look at one of the more, um, it's one of the more uh, challenging texts to interpret when it comes to uh, women, and specifically women's roles in the church. And within the church world, there's really two frameworks that you look at this conversation. One is called complementarian, the other is egalitarian. Don't, don't, don't get thrown off by those, those words, those words are in your notes. But basically, one, one group, uh, I think both, both would say that, that, that there's value in both genders, like equal value in both genders. But the question is, is what, um, are, are women limited in certain roles and functions in the church uh, and based on scriptures in the New Testament? What limitations are there for women? And the egalitarians would say, hey, uh, women have unlimited inclusion. They're included in everything. Where uh, complementarians would say, no, they're actually excluded from some things. And then that, as you shake out complementarian and how it's actually applied, it's applied in different ways at different churches, different contexts. Um, and probably the same goes for the egalitarian world as well. 
Um, and so you have these two basic uh, premises, but then on the peripherals, on the outsides of these, you have, you have some extreme views of this. Like you have the extreme view of the domineering husband, the controlling husband, and that the wife is just there to serve him, to cook, to, to make meals, and, 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 and you, just, you have kind of the stereotypical macho male and you know, weak, vulnerable wife uh, that, that, that is subservient to um, her husband. And I, I would say that's, that's on the far side of this. And then I would also say on the other side is this progressive view of women's rights. And that is, that is f- f- in your face culturally. There, there's been this feministic movement that has emerged and it's emerged because women have been oppressed systemically. Like if you look back in our culture, women have been oppressed. They weren't allowed to vote at one point. Hello. Like, they weren't allowed to vote. And so we've come a long way, but what happens is when you see an injustice, just life in general, and this is just a good principle universally, it applies to this topic, but it also applies to a number of other topics. When you see an injustice in the earth, when you see something that's wrong, people respond in anger. And it's a natural response when you see a wrong. You get angry. But the Bible's very, very clear in James chapter one. It says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so if we're responding to this issue in anger, we end up on the peripheral over here and we're actually responding to the things that happened because of over here. And I think the Bible is a higher ground. The Bible calls us to a higher place. And so I'm contending that we come to a higher place, and I actually don't like labels. I don't like generalizations. Well, this church is that, and this church is that. I don't like that. It categorically, uh, uh, oftentimes, it, it, it brings this justified disconnect from those people. And so I don't want to preach this to bring division to the body. I don't want to preach this to bring, um, you know, I'm not preaching it. To, to make a point and hopefully convince everyone that I'm right. I just want to share my heart based on the scriptures, how the upper room has approached this. And I actually have friends in the upper room that would be complementarianists that are, they would say they're soft complementarianists, which is a, a, a phrase in the complementarian world. And I said, well, maybe I'm a soft egalitarianist. I don't know uh, what label I am, but I'm, I'm trying to be faithful to the text, trying to be faithful to what I feel like God has revealed through his word. And I'm going to do that tonight. Um, there's a man by the name of Craig, Craig, uh, Craig Bloomberg. He's, uh, again, I've done, I mean, I'm close to 100 hours in research and study uh, for all this. My notes tonight were 35 pages. Aren't you glad I condensed them? <laughs> you're, you're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I condensed them. You, your, your notes were only like three or four pages. So, um, but I, I've just I've gone deep into this subject, and, and Craig Bloomberg, who would call himself a soft complementarianist, I imagine, uh, has this incredible quote that I want to just, I want to put over this conversation tonight. Here's the quote. I could be wrong. I respect the right of fellow evangelicals and evan- evangelical churches to come to different conclusions, and I will cooperate with them rather than combat them for the larger cause of Christ and his kingdom, which is so desperately needs such unity. It so desperately needs such unity. And so that's my heart. You with me? Yeah. You with me. All right. So, um, <clears throat> I, I do have a conviction about this when it comes to women. Based on my studies, and this is kind of the case that I do want to make, uh, I want to present that women need to be valued in calling, women need to be valued in gifting, and women need to be valued in positional leadership under the authority of the local church. And I think that this includes preaching, singing, people sung tonight, 
uh, leading publicly, pastoring, evangelizing, prophesying, teaching, and mixed audiences under the authority of the local church empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we are a local church. We have uh, governing elders. We have a staff. We have we have all the inner workings of a New Testament church, and, and, and submitting to, I think, a local church government is really important. It's really important to identify with a local body. I know there's the big C, but you need to be a part of a little C on a local level, connected to people under authority. I think uh, life flows through authority. Uh, last week, I talked about the purpose of authority, that, that godly authority, Jesus said that I did not come to be served, but to serve. And so godly authority is actually someone that picks up a towel and washes feet. Uh, John 13, all authority on heaven and earth was given to Jesus. He picked up the towel and began washing his disciples' feet. Like it's just the upside down kingdom. And I would say it's true in regards to this topic when we uh, uh, talk about authority, anyone walking in authority. So the text tonight is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, get your Bibles out. It could be your phone. I really encourage you to get some pages that you can turn and mark up and develop a history with a Bible. It's really, really important. I have all my Bibles since I was 20. I've kept them all. And uh, my goal is to, I don't think my kids are in here, but I'm going to bind them up one day and give them to my kids. I know, isn't that cool? Uh, I just, it's, there's such history. I can look back at Bibles and I can see uh, journeys where the Lord was highlighting certain things. Um, I love to write in my Bible. Uh, tonight's text is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read the text, just the focus text tonight, and then I'm going to back up and give a lot of context to the text so that we can understand why Paul is saying what he's saying. Why is he communicating what he's communicating? How he's communicating it to who he's communicating it to? Because this text can be uh, fairly troubling when it comes to the conversation around women, specifically women speaking, preaching women ministering, um, this verse seems to be conclusive from the onset what I'm going to read. So here's what it says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 35 and 34, verse 35 and 34. Uh, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in the church. There it is. There's our text, two verses. So one of the things, anytime you're reading scripture, um, one of the things you need to do is you need to put two lenses on. One is a cultural lens. When you read a text, you have to understand that Paul's addressing people in a specific culture. And some instructions in scriptures are, are for that culture. Like in this letter that we're looking at, two chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it says to greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, some of you guys are like, all right, <laughs> here we go. No, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying, Sunday night. <laughs> that's not what he's saying. It's, it's a term of endearment. It's like shaking a hand, giving a hug. Um, it's, it's, it's a way of engaging someone in love uh, and connecting with them. You're saying, hey, hey, greet them this way. And so we understand that in the context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about head coverings talks about women wearing head coverings. If you're not wearing a head covering, you're disgracing your head. Well, 99% of churches in America, women aren't wearing head coverings. Why? Because we're interpreting that as a cultural truth. It was for specific times, specific people, and we need to put that lens over it because Paul's addressing them in that context. But then there's transcultural truths. 
Transcultural truths are, are truths that are found in a culture, but they transcend into other cultures, into other times, into other places. They're overarching truths that we need to, um, you know, we, we, need to, we need to lay hold of and we need to understand that. And, and in this text, there's some transcultural truths in regards to the assembly, but there's also some cultural ones. And so to understand that, let's look at the church that Paul is talking about. It's a church in Corinth. It's a church he planted in 50 AD. Everyone say 50 AD. So it was, it was at least a decade after Jesus died, maybe 15 years, the church has been rolling. Um, and Paul will look at when he uh, shows up at Corinth. It's in Acts chapter 18. And he is responsible for planting this church. So they had written a letter to him, and he's responding to them based on some circumstances and situations that were happening at the church at Corinth. He actually wrote three letters. They think 1 Corinthians is the second letter. They don't know where the first one is. And then 2 Corinthians would be the third letter. But we have in the canon two books, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he's addressing a lot of issues, most likely issues that were brought to the surface uh, by the leaders that were there. Uh, the first issue that he starts to address right out of the gates is um, leadership and authority. Because some were saying, I follow Paul. Some were saying, I follow Apollos. And others were saying, I follow Cephas. So there was a, a, a tug of war between who's leading this church, who carries apostolic authority over this home. And Paul is making a case that it's him. Paul is saying, I, I fathered this thing. Like, like, like I'm, in, and this is in the text today where he really is gonna flex that, exer exercise that authority. Um, but within the context of uh, that, not only were there divisions of teachers, but in chapter five, there's incest. There's, there's incest. There's a guy, I think he's sleeping with his either mother-in-law, something like that, something wonky. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's not good. And, and they were tolerating it. And, and Paul's confronting it. He's saying, hey, this is sin. This person shouldn't come to the table of the Lord. Uh, it's very clear how you're to respond to this. You're to set him outside the church because he's unrepentant. And so he's very clear about this issue. Right after that, he goes into lawsuits. There were believers in the assembly suing one another. And he's like, can you not handle these disputes in the house of the Lord? Uh, the next chapter, chapter seven, is women and men in marriages. And he's very clear, husbands, your body's not your own. Women have authority over your body. He's talking about the marriage bed. And, and wives, your body's not your own. Men have authority over your body. He's saying, don't, don't withhold from one another except for a time of fasting. It's very, very clear about the marriage bed. Same commands to woman, same, same commands to man. He gives instructions for being single. He's like, actually, it's better that you stay single. That's in there. <laughs> but lest you burn, find someone. <laughs> He's like, hey, but, 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 you know, go for it. Uh, so, he talks about that. It's, it's, it's all in there. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He talks about eating food offered to idols. Um, he talks about head coverings, which we mentioned. He talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he, or, yeah, 11, he makes a case for the Lord's Supper. Very, very, very uh, in-depth teaching on the Lord's Supper starting in 1126. Uh, some were showing up and they were overindulging at the table. They were drinking too much. In fact, they were getting drunk at the Lord's table. Uh, the poor were being excluded from it. The rich were hoarding it. And Paul's going, hey, no, this is the Lord's table. It's for all. Judge yourself rightly when you come to this meal. For this reason, some of you are sick, weak, and dying. Like that meal that you took earlier is holy. It's holy. It's significant. It's, it's way different than any other meal that you eat. It's, it's significant. Paul's making that case. And then... Um, Going into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which will be the context of what we're talking about tonight, uh, he talks about spiritual gifts. And so 1 Corinthians 12 is 
gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the body. So the Father gives gifts. Those are found in Romans 12. The Son gives gifts. Those are in Ephesians 4. The Holy Spirit gives gifts, and those are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul is going to talk about using the gifts. And the case for the gifts is that the gifts are unto edification. The gifts are unto unification. The gifts are given to many, but it's under the purpose of one. It's under the purpose of the head. It's under the purpose of encouraging, exhorting. It's under the uh, encouraging one another in their relationship with the Lord. There's a number of gifts that are listed. Then he goes to 13, which is a chapter that everyone in this room knows. Chapter 13, love is patient. Love is Love, it does not envy, boast. So this is that chapter. It's found in chapter 13. And so Paul's actually not talking about marriage. He's talking about spiritual gifts. And so if, if, if 12 is uh, the gifts of the spirit, 13 is the spirit of the gifts. And the spirit of the gifts is love. And, and many people have been wounded by misfired gifts. The motive wasn't love. The motive was pride. The motive was exercising authority or to show how spiritual they are. And if that's happened, I'm sorry. But that was actually happening at Corinth. They were, they were exercising their gifts, and it wasn't unto love. And Paul's confronting that. And so that's why that chapter's in there. He's saying, hey, this has to be unto this end. And so then we move to chapter 14, which is the language of the Spirit. So gifts of the Spirit, Spirit of the gifts, and then 14 is the language of the Spirit, which is one of my favorite chapters because it talks about one of my favorite things to do, and it's praying in the Spirit. That's 14.2. And he's going to talk about the difference between praying to God in a tongue and speaking to others in a tongue. He's going to, he's going to kind of uh, parallel prophecy in tongues in the local church. And it's, it's instructive about the assembly and how you use these gifts. And over and over and over, he says it's for the edification of one another. In fact, I, I, I wrote those scriptures down. They're in your notes. Uh, in chapter 14, he says this. He says in five, he says, the church needs to receive edification. If you prophesy, 12, seek to abound for the edification of the church. 16, he's rebuking them saying, hey, if you speak in tongues, people won't know what you're saying. Uh, in 19, he says, I'd rather speak five intelligible words so that I may instruct others. Uh, verse 23 is the same thing. And then in our text tonight, in verse 26, he says, let all things be done for edification. In verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches. And then he ends this section of text in verse 40, but in all things, but all things must be done properly and in, or, in an orderly manner. So he's bringing order, he's bringing uh, structure to their gathering so that it's not chaotic and that all will be edified. You following me? So I'm giving you a lot of backdrop because sometimes we just take an exacto knife of these two verses, we throw them on Instagram, we're like, this is what that says. But I think you need to know the context of why it says what it says. And he's instructing women to be silent. And so this text tonight that we're looking at and that we just read, it starts, his, 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 his train of thought starts in 26 because he says this, he says practically, what is the outcome then? What is the outcome then? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So most likely, it was a smaller gathering than this because tonight, if everyone brought something, we'd be here all night. And so, so tonight, I think the setting for uh, an assembly like this was probably in a home. It was probably... Uh, in a home. Maybe there were 20 people, 50 people. I don't know, but it was, it was small enough where each one could bring something to the meeting so that all could be edified. And he's going to start addressing here uh, two, 
two expressions of the language of the Spirit, which is prophecy and tongues. He's going to bring order to that. So the first one, and, and so it's tongues, prophecy, and women. Tongues, prophecy, and women. And as he addresses each one of these three groups, the tongue talkers, the prophesiers, and the women that were speaking, he's going to use the same term towards each audience. He's going to say, you need to remain quiet. You need to be silent. And so I have that up here. This is in your notes as well. And modern day translators, English translators, don't translate uh, the word silent consistently, even though it's the same word in the Greek. So the NASB says to keep silent, keep silent, keep silent, which is probably a proper interpretation. NIV should keep quiet, should stop, should remain silent. This is an interesting uh, translation. Uh, And then King James, keep silent, hold their peace, keep silent. So you see all three groups, he's telling them to be quiet. So it's not just the women that he's addressing in regards to being quiet. So let's look at this. Hop into verse 27. Say, I love my Bible. I do too. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most and each in turn. You can't do it at the same time. And when you do it, someone must interpret what's being said. If there's no interpreter, you must keep silent. So if no one's there to interpret, you must keep silent, speak it to yourself and speak it to God. Why? Because if there's not an interpreter, no one will understand what you're saying. If you're speaking in a heavenly tongue and you're addressing someone and there's not an interpreter, a tongue that isn't interpreted given to a body, it doesn't edify. But when it's interpreted, it becomes a prophetic word. It becomes something that's clear and tangible that you can lay hold of. And so Paul's just addressing that. Hey, two or three of you can give a tongue and then one interpret it. The next group. So important, no interpreter, keep silent. Next group is in 29. And he says, let two or three prophets speak. Say prophets. So this is a gift endowed by the Holy Spirit that would come upon someone and they would speak as if it was an unction from the Holy Spirit. And prophecies declaring the word of the Lord. I just, I just wanna say prophecies preaching, prophecies sharing something that is from the Lord and, and Paul says to pass judgment on it. So here's, here's a key about, now we're talking about women, but when it comes to prophecy, specifically in an environment like this, because a lot of you are young, you may not have been in an environment like this, but New Testament prophecies to be weighed. If you get a word from someone that comes up and they go, hey, I got a word from God for you. You have every right to judge that. You have every right to determine if it was from the Lord for you. And we actually shouldn't use that term. Hey, God spoke to me about this. You can sense, hey, I feel God spoke to me about this. Hey, would you, would you consider this? There's a humble way to give a word. But when you, when you come and you're like, God spoke to me about you, it, it just, it's a non-starter. It's like, well, if he spoke to you, then I've got to believe exactly what you're saying. And, and if it's God, it will bear fruit. If it's God, it's just your job to deliver it in a way that they can receive it. And so Paul is saying, hey, prophets, you're not above judgment. You're not above being judged. You're not above submitting your word so that we can testify together that this is truly from the Lord. And so he's bringing order to that. And he says this. He says, uh, if no, uh, <clears throat> this is verse 30. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated. So if you've prophesied and someone else has a revelation, then, then uh, the first one must keep silent. So the first one needs to sit down and be quiet. So here's the second person he's telling to be quiet. Once you've given your prophecy, sit down and let someone else speak. Very clear. Um, I love 31, for you can all prophesy. Say all. All. I think all means all. 
In 1 Corinthians 12, he does not distinguish between genders. There's not like these are the men gifts, these are the women gifts. And here he says, all can prophesy, all can declare the word of the Lord. It's really true. And I think we should pursue prophecy according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. It says, eagerly desire this. And so we can all prophesy. <clears throat> One by one, so that all may learn and be exhorted. Again, learning, exhortation is the goal. And verse 32, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, which means, which means it's, it's, it's in accordance to your will. Uh, sometimes I think when it comes to the mystical and things of the spirit, we don't think that we have any, any part of our will is a part of that. And that's not what Paul's saying. He says the, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. So you don't just break out into spasms. You, like tongues doesn't just come upon you at Whole Foods or whatever it is, that, that there's this cooperation of your will, that you're subjected under the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit you, you exercise your will accordingly. You exercise your will with discernment as he speaks. So Paul's just bringing order to the tongue talkers and to the prophesiers. And so in verse 32, we mentioned that, 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but God is a God of peace. So he's bringing peace again to the community as in, as in all the churches of the saints. And so here's our text, verse 34 and 35. Uh, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. So um, the women are to keep silent. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. It is improper for a woman to speak in the church. So this word for woman can be translated wives. Uh, women and wives in the Greek, same word. So it could say the wives are to keep silent in the church. So there's basically uh, three, three views I wanna present to you based on this text. Uh, there's a lot on this text, obviously. I'm gonna just present three common views that I've heard in all of my studies. I could probably present 20. But the first one is that this is a universal truth that women should not speak in a church, um, at least authoritatively or preach at a church. And this is for all churches at all time in any setting. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I, I grew up actually in, um, in, a, in a culture like this. Uh, women weren't allowed to serve communion. Um, there, were, there were just e exclusions for women. And I, I love the denomination that I grew up in. I, I, I bless them. It was, it was amazing. Um, but I, I, I didn't fully understand this one. Uh, because of how it's applied and how you actually apply, well, well how excluded are women from speaking? Because I heard women speaking in here today. Am I right? Or can they, can they give announcements? Can they, can they sing? Like, like, what is the extent of this? And, and so sometimes how it's applied, it's, it's not always consistent in how it's applied. Uh, but, but really, the, the, the thing for me is women can't speak in church. Well, Paul, this is 14, in chapter 11, Paul said this. Look up 1 Corinthians 11.5. In 1 Corinthians 11.5. <clears throat> I love hearing your Bibles turn. Paul said this, but every woman, so this is woman, same word, who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, while praying or prophesying, should not do it because she's to keep quiet in the church. That's not what it says. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So he's talking about head coverings, and that's a that's another text that maybe we'll get to in this series, but he does not exclude them from praying and prophesying in the assembly. And in the context of what we're talking about, we just read through 
someone prophesying, which most likely was women prophesying. So they would have fit under the category that we just previously read according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 5. So either Paul's changed his mind here or he's addressing something else. And my contention is he's addressing something else. And I also, I also wrestle with, we've, we've, we've highlighted this in this section, but we haven't wrestled through how do tongues fit into an assembly? How does prophecy fit into assembly? I think in a lot of communities where women are silent, so are tongues and prophecy. And so I, I think we have to wrestle through this text. We highlight this one, but he's talking about tongue speaking. If they were doing it so regularly, why were they doing it? And I have thoughts on that, and I'm not teaching on tongues tonight, but, but I think we, we need to wrestle with this a little bit more than just exacto knife, women need to be quiet in the church. And so what are the other two plausibilities? Uh, and and I, I actually understand both of these. The other one that I wanted to present to you, again, there's a number of them, uh, would be this, is, is that um, they're not allowed to judge the prophecies, because we just talked about prophecies, so they're not carrying an authoritative role to discern the truth, it would be a teaching role, and so they're not allowed to um, interpret uh, the tongues. That role's for elders, teachers, and authority, and I think this is actually more plausible based on how you interpret other uh, texts. Um, <clears throat> but in this context, uh, another thing, in this context, it doesn't seem like these women were judging prophecy because Paul says this, if any woman desires to learn. They need to be quiet, for if any woman desires to learn, she needs to ask her husband at home. So it had to do, I think, more with learning. And it had to do with, uh, maybe it was etiquette in how they were speaking, or maybe it was something that was being shared. But they were attempting to learn in a way that was bringing disorder, or what they were doing, they needed to learn how to do it in a more orderly way, because it was causing disruption here. So that's how, that's how I, I see that. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can land there. So number three in the view that I want to put up to you is, is that this is uh, addressing a specific problem in a specific culture to establish order in the church. And so this, this has two plausibilities. Uh, the first one is, is this, that, that, well, I'll give both of them. Either they were overstepping their, and disrupting the meeting um, with questions. So they were asking questions because they didn't understand what was happening. So I'll explain that in a little bit. Or, or... Uh, based on what Paul says after this, they were overstepping their place in authority as prophetesses, as those that were prophesying. They weren't doing it in correct order. So I'll explain both of those. Let's look at number one, them asking questions. I actually land here. I think that these women were asking questions and it was disruptive. Uh, and here's why. Um, here's why. Are you guys with me? Yes. All right. <laughs> I love this stuff. So in, in the city of Corinth, in, in antiquity, when it existed... Um, it was a melting pot of cultures. Uh, there was a Grecian influence, like they had the Temple of Aphrodite was there. It was, it was big commerce, uh, very affluent. Uh, it was, it was, I think there was a, a port or a port nearby, and it kind of opened up the eastern side where people would come through. And so they had a Grecian influence, they had a Roman influence, as we'll read in just a second, there was a Roman proconsul or a Roman mayor or governor that was over this uh, region. And then there was also a significant Jewish influence. And my, my thought is, is that there wasn't, um, there was a significant Jew, influence, Jewish influence in the region, but I think there was a significant Jewish influence in this specific church. And why that's important is because in any Jewish context, even today, uh, men and women sit on opposite sides of the room. 
Uh, it's the mission of the, their, their ordinances have stated that women need to be on one side and men need to be on the other. And, and we see that, you know, I was, uh, and, and also in Jewish cultures, women, women in all those cultures that I just mentioned, women were actually uh, secondary to men. Um, they, weren't, they weren't afforded the same opportunities. Um, and, and in the Jewish setting, they specifically weren't. They, they weren't allowed to study the Torah. They could hear the reading of the Torah, but they certainly couldn't study it. So they were second-class citizens when it comes to education. Um, they just weren't empowered on, on any level whatsoever. And so I, I, I play this out that there was a division within the room that they're meeting in. I, I was actually at the Western Wall. Have y'all been there? If you haven't, you need to go. It's amazing. Uh, go to Israel. But this is the Western Wall in Jerusalem in the old city. And even today, I was reading articles about it yesterday, they have a div divide between the women and the men. So if the drum cage may be in your way for some of you, but on the right side, that's where the women are. And on the left side, that's where the men are. Uh, there's just a, a place for men to pray and women to pray. And so even today, this type of setting exists. And this is a large scale of what potentially could have existed in a home church. So the question is, what, what influence, what Jewish influence would this church have had? If they had a Jewish influence, what would it have been? So I wanna show you where I'm getting this from because of how and where Paul planted the church. Go to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18. <clears throat> this is Paul's journey to, to Corinth. It's Acts 18 verse one. It says, after these things, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. So that's the city. He arrives, and we'll talk about Priscilla and Aquila in a little bit, but uh, look at verse four. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks, so speaking to the Jewish people and the Grecians, and when Silas and Timothy show up, uh, they began devoting themselves, uh, Paul de began devoting himself completely to the word, Solomon testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, so to the Jews, but the Jews resisted in blasphemy. He shook off his garments, your blood be on your own hands, I am clean, for now I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus, a worshiper of God. So he was a believer whose house was next to the synagogue. So he found himself living next to the synagogue. And look at this, the next verse. In his time living next to the synagogue, he ministers and preaches the gospel to a guy named Crispus. And Crispus was the leader of the synagogue. So the head honcho of the synagogue, Paul preaches the gospel to him and he believes in the gospel, him and all of his household. And it says many of the Corinthians when they heard were believing and were baptized. I think many of those people were under the leadership of Crispus. That makes sense in context. So you have a, 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 a Jewish culture, it doesn't end there. Uh, doesn't end there. Verse nine, um, the Lord comes to Paul, don't be afraid, go on speaking, do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. So Paul was ready to bolt and go to the Gentiles, but God's like, nope, you're gonna stay here. And in the next verse, we see that he stayed there for a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. Now, in that year and a half, there's a scene that plays out where Gallio, Galeo, was the proconsul of this region. Achaia is the region that Athens and Corinth were in. And so Gallio, the proconsul, was the mayor. He was the Roman official that oversaw uh, civil life. And so the Jews, with one accord, come against Paul and they bring them before the judgment seat, which is this Roman proconsul. And this man does not want to hear anything that they're saying. This man dismisses him. He says, uh, he says uh, they were 
persuading men, laying out their case. And then in uh, verse 15, um, he says, I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. So he drives these Jews and Paul away from the judgment seat. And look at verse 17. This is is pretty funny. In verse 17, they took hold of Sothenes. Sothenes was the new leader of the synagogue. So they replaced Crispus with Sothenes. And they began beating up Sothenes in front of the judgment seat. So they were so mad because of what Paul was doing and Sothenes' role and not handling Paul, they take him out. They beat him up. That's profound. <laughs> Poor Sothenes. And this is, this is common within the Jewish culture. When Jesus was teaching, it actually says in the Gospels that the Jews crucified Jesus out of envy. It was envy. It was envy in what he was preaching. It was envy in what he was building. And I think that same spirit is at play here coming against Paul. So you have Crispus, leader of the synagogue, gets born again. You have Sophanes. We leave him here black and blue and bloody. He's just been beat up by his congregants. And so go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 1, it's just a couple of chapters, uh, it's one book over. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Look how Paul starts out his letter. Paul gives his description, called by an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother. Who is Sothenes? He's with Paul. Why is he with Paul? Because he gave his life to Jesus. So you have two of the leaders of the synagogue have given their lives to Jesus under Paul's ministry, and now we have Sothenes traveling with Paul. And of course, Paul is gonna mention Sothenes in the opening letter of his book to the church at Corinth because Sothenes is with him, and that community would have known Sothenes. Why? Because I think predominant group in the church at Corinth were Jewish. And I think the leadership of the church at Corinth was Jewish as well. It would be somewhat of a hand in glove, you would think. And so it's very easy based on, those, uh, on that evidence that the church at Corinth could have had Jewish customs still at play in their gatherings. And so what could have happened is women are listening to the Torah, uh, to the Torah, to the scriptures, which probably would have been the Torah. They're, they're listening to it being taught. And for the first time in their lives, they can actually learn and engage. For the first time, they're not just covered in veils and quiet and sitting for the first time, they can actually engage and learn what's being taught. This is unprecedented for Jewish women. They weren't allowed that. They weren't afforded that. And in this context, they're afforded that. And so what some propose, a plausible reason, he's saying they need to be quiet, is because they're asking questions to their husbands that are on the other side of the room. <laughs> it's funny, but it's plausible based on that. Which would totally cause disorder. Honey, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's what was at play, but, but whatever, whatever they were doing, and I think they were asking questions, um, it was disrupting the meeting. And so the other, the other plausible, the plausible thing that could also be here is that they were prophesying, is that they were prophesying. And, and they were prophesying things that, that weren't true to the word of God. They were, they were overstepping their authority 
And whether, whether they were judging prophecy or they were giving prophecy, it was out of order and it was bringing chaos and confusion. And I think that's why Paul continues this line of thought, could be one of the reasons Paul uh, continues his line of thought here um, in, in, it's somewhere on my iPad where to go. Here it is, in verse 36. Verse 36, 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 36, he continues. I, I don't want to leave this out. Someone asked it about this morning. So he, he, women need to be silent. It's improper for a woman to speak in church. And he says this. He says, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come from you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize these things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What is Paul doing? He's flexing his authority as an apostle. He's saying, listen, church at Corinth, you're not the only church. Church at Corinth, the word of God did not originate in you and you need to humble yourself and submit to it. And those that won't recognize this, I won't recognize. What I'm writing to you is authoritative and it's the word of the Lord. And then he concludes his argument in, in verse 38. So after, thirty-nine. Therefore, my brothers, so therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So Paul concludes his thoughts to the church based on that. So <clears throat> that's, that's my exegete of this. This is how I read it. This is how I view this. Um, I think it is a cultural truth to uh, women, specifically about how they were speaking, not necessarily for all women all time, that they should not speak. And I think if women do speak, they need to be submitted to the order of the church. They need to be submitted to the word of God, and they need to do it in an orderly fashion. I think that's what Paul is addressing here. And there's some other cases to be made around the subject of women at Corinth, um, and I want to I want to add this to this conversation because I think it's important. And and the reason I'm I'm doing nuance on this is because there's women in this room and scriptures like this, you've wrestled with them. There's there's scriptures like this that as a woman who wants to be faithful to the Word of God, we're we're not just saying this because because we're trying to adapt culture to it. We're really trying to 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 interpret this based on what the Word of God is. And I see women in leadership at the church at Corinth. I think women's fingerprints are all over the origins of this church. And I wanna start back in 1 Corinthians chapter, or Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> in Acts 18, we mentioned Paul arriving at Corinth and it immediately introduces a couple. And I actually think this couple is a great model for marriages. It's Aquila... <clears throat> who's the husband. It's so funny their names are Aquila and Priscilla. Um, <clears throat> he found a Jew named Aquila. Now they think Aquila could have been one of the 72 that were sent out from Jesus. Uh, in Luke, I think it's Luke uh, 10, when he sends out not only the 12, but he sends out the whole, the, the two by twos. Even some have thought Priscilla would have been a part of that. But he found a Jew named Aquila, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And... Verse three, uh, he came to them because of the same trade and he stayed with them and they were working for by trade, they, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. So they worked together as tent makers. <clears throat> and, and it's interesting, my iPad, do you have my phone? My notes are on there. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank God for the iPhone, huh? I just lost my notes. Um, it's amazing when you have little kids that drain the battery of your iPhone or your iPad. <laughs> um, I, I just want to make mention of this about Priscilla real quick, um, Priscilla and Aquila, because they, they were instrumental in planting the church at Corinth. Uh, here we go. This is a power couple. And... Um, Here we go. They were, inseparable. they were inseparably linked together. Seven times it mentions uh, Priscilla and Aquila, every time it mentions them together. And, and one of the interesting things about the mention of their name is, is how, uh, how it's written. Um, oftentimes, if someone's name was written first, they were more important in, in the day they were writing this. Like, like Barnabas's name came before Paul's until Acts 13. And once they're sent to the Gentiles, it's then not Barnabas and Paul, it's Paul and Barnabas. And so it's with significance that Paul comes before Barnabas because he's more important as an apostle. And in regards to Priscilla and Aquila, um, <clears throat> it says that they were insincerely linked in ministry. Of seven occurrences, twice Aquila's name precedes Priscilla's, as was the custom among when Romans speaking of a married couple. Contrary to the norm, Priscilla's name precedes Aquila's in the remaining five. It's 71% of the time. This frequent juxtaposition is elsewhere so rare in antiquity, it most likely indicates in their ministry team that Priscilla was the more prominent member. And so Priscilla and Aquila, regardless, you have a couple that's ministering together, and Paul links arms with him. Well, in the same chapter, look at their role in Apollos' life. They go to Ephesus, and they run into this guy named Apollos. And Apollos is preaching, and he's fiery. But he had only heard of the baptism of John. And so in verse 26, look at this. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching. Priscilla and Aquila took him aside. And what did they do? They explained the, more, uh, the scriptures more clearly. So they took him aside and they taught him. They taught him the scriptures and they taught him what the gospel was. They taught him about the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we read about in the next chapter. So they instruct Apollos. Well, guess where Apollos would go from here? Chapter 19, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, uh, Apollos goes to Corinth and he preaches. And so Apollos was also a foundational uh, component to the church at uh, Corinthians. It's why... Uh, it's why they said some follow Paul, some follow Paul's. But you have to see Priscilla's role in teaching Apollos. You see that? I think it's important. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think uh, we have Priscilla and Aquila's in our midst. Uh, I look at couples that have made up the upper room. Two of them are right here. They're not Priscilla and Aquila, but they're Phil and Melissa. I mean, they, we, you know, if, if we were going to write a letter to upper room, it wouldn't be Phil or Melissa. It would be Felissa. That's their name. Am I right? Felissa, the artist formerly known as Phil and Melissa, but we have Felissa. Uh, we have, uh, we just have a number of couples, prominent couples. Uh, Don and Tim Martin are couples that have just served so faithfully here. And when you see Don, you see Tim. They're running together. Uh, Jane and Truman Spring are two people that have deeply impacted my life. Uh, when Larissa and I were first married, I, I, this is very pertinent to the upper room because when we were first married, um, Larissa and I had been praying for a spiritual mom and dad. Uh, just for a long time, our history, we just really contended, God, would you just give us someone that understands our pursuit of Jesus? We would love, Lord, you to just a covering. And we ended up going to a church in Lake Highlands, and we met Jane and Truman Spring. 
And while at Lake Highlands, I found out in the small group, as we went to Jane and Truman's small group, that Jane had a prayer house in her room, in her home. She loved prayer. She went to Kansas City and was like, I am going to start a prayer room, and I am going to do it at my church. And I don't think there was room at the church or something. So she said, forget it. I'm going to do it in my living room. So she posted at the church, prayer room for this church at Jane Springs House. It was 6 to 8 a.m., 6 to 8 p.m., Tuesday and Thursday. And so being a member at the church, hearing about this, I said, Jane, I'm going to come to your prayer meeting. And so I showed up, and no one was at the prayer meeting. It was just me. Well, Truman was there because he lived there, but, <laughs> but, but it was just me. And I sat with Jane, and I heard her pray, and I thought, this woman, you're crazy. Like, no one's coming. Like, for weeks, no one would come, but she would faithfully, six to eight, six to eight, she's praying. And so when we started this little meeting in Oak Lawn in an upper room it was going to be seven weeks. Jane and Truman were there. They've been there from the beginning. And we started to plow through the summer, started to get some momentum. And Truman approached me and he said, listen, Jane and I are moving and we're moving to Uptown because of what God's doing here. I hadn't even moved yet. We were still up north. And I was like, that's not a good idea, Truman. I don't know if this thing's going to stay. He goes, it's going to stay. God's planted something here. It's significant. It wasn't a church quite yet. But he said, we're moving so that we can build out prayer. Here's the deal. My wife has a prayer room in her living room. You're going to adopt the hours. And these hours are going to be at the upper room, and you need to come. And so I was like, okay, I'm in. So we moved down, and I went into the school of prayer with Jane Spring. 6 to 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning, 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evening, repeat on Thursday. And I was bored to tears. But by sitting in that room with Jane over months, I learned how to pray. And the dream that was in Jane's heart, the dream that was in her heart, this mama out in Garland praying for a prayer room, God brings her a spiritual son, and her dream becomes my vision. Because now we wrote it on a wall, morning, noon, and night. We pray morning, noon, and night. So now we don't just meet from 6 to 8 a.m. on Tuesday, 6 to 8 a.m. on those original hours have expanded to what I told you earlier, Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day. That's the fruit of Jane Spring. It is. It's amazing. And I, I, feel, like, I feel like Aquila, Aquila fits that. Priscilla and Aquila, they were prominent missionaries in the early church, responsible for planting a number of churches. Uh, Chloe is someone else that was impactful at the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, but when Paul's admonishing the church at Corinth, he says, greet Chloe's household. Greet Chloe's household. This says Chloe's people. But the translation is Chloe's home are those that are in her home. And it's assumed in other places when this is addressed, it's someone that's leading a house church. So Chloe, at least because she's mentioned in this and the people that she's leading was prominent in the church at Corinth. And then the last person that I want to mention is from Corinth, which is really, I think, a profound figure to study out if you're a woman, is a woman by the name of Phoebe. Phoebe's mentioned in Romans chapter 16. I'm almost finished. Romans chapter 16. Uh, this is, uh, let, me, let me give you a little context to the book of Romans. Uh, <clears throat> Romans was written to people that lived in, guess what? Rome. And... <laughs> And Paul wrote this letter, though, from Corinth. Paul wrote the book of Romans in Corinth. So he's at Corinth, and he's writing this letter. And it is, it is agreed upon that Paul gave this letter to a woman named Phoebe. And Phoebe, who he's commending here in the book of Romans, 
It says this sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Sincrea, Sincrea. Now you're like, where's Sincrea? Sincrea is a border neighborhood of Corinth. It's a border neighborhood. It's seven miles from downtown Corinth. And so she was from Corinth and would have known Paul, was probably leading something in Sincrea. We don't know what her role is other than she was a deacon. So this word for servant is deacon. So women can be deacons because Phoebe was a deacon. See it right here. She was a servant. She was a deacon. So Phoebe, the deacon from Sincrea, and then look at what he says, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. And then look at the next verse. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. They show up again. So um, <clears throat> this, is, this, is, this is significant, that Phoebe was carrying the letter, which meant she had authority to, expo- uh, uh, to explain the letter. She, if they had questions about the letter, I'm sure Paul said, hey, they're really going to get hung up on, on this, this, this part about Romans 6. Should grace abound so that sin abound the more? No. Like, highlight the no. I put no. No. Like, like, she came understanding the content of that letter. You've got to at least think about that, that she was coming with that. So for Paul to say, hey, women, you be silent in this church, based on the leadership already explained, I just find it, I don't find it plausible. I don't find it plausible. I find it, I find it uh, cultural. I find it specific to women that were overstepping their authority in that context. They were either prophesying or asking questions to their husband. And I think we've done a disservice to women when they're preaching online and we put 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35. What is that? Women should be silent in the church. What is she doing? I don't think this text gives us the ability for one half of the body of Christ. Yeah, no, you can't. You can't speak. You can't prophesy. You can't. To me, that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. <clears throat> we, need, we need women to speak. I mean, don't you think that Ananias in Acts 5 wished Sapphira would have spoken up a little louder than she did? Do uh, you know your Bible? You know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They lied. It was, the, it was, it was Ananias' idea. I sold property, I'm only getting a portion. Okay. Hey, Peter, did, did you sell it for this price? Because it's what your husband said. The men who just carried out your husband are about to carry you out. We need women's voices. You see Mary's voice in John 12. Oh, she didn't say anything. But she was so in tune with what was happening that night. She broke open an alabaster jar, tens of thousands of dollars worth of probably her dowry, breaks it open at Jesus' feet. Judas, reasoning, God, that money could have been spent for the poor. That money could have been used for something else. He didn't understand. She was anointing him for his burial. The next day, Jesus would take on the sins of the world And as he's taken on the sins of the world, that nard that was put upon him was still on his body. And then in that place, the crucifixion. Oh, the mighty 12. We know one betrayed, but where were the other 11? 
John showed up. The other 10 weren't at the crucifixion. You know who was? Three Marys. What about his trial? At his trial, he's standing in front of Pilate. You know who speaks up for Jesus? Pilate's wife. She shows up and she goes, I had a dream last night about this man. He's innocent. What about the resurrection? Over and over and over and over, Jesus, I'm going to die. Three days. I'm going to die. Three days. I'm going to die. Three days. Destroy this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. It's the third day. You know where the disciples were? A scared, fearful, shut up, locked up in the upper room. John 20 tells us. You know who was at the tomb? The Marys. Go tell my brothers. In fact, he says this, he says this to Mary. It's my favorite Easter sermon. So simple. First time the gospel's proclaimed. Mary shows up into that room where those guys are scared. Five words. I have seen the Lord. Proclaimed by a woman. Evangelizing. Testifying. What's my point? My point is, is that I just think we've done a disservice to females at times in certain cultures in certain settings. I know that there's more nuance to this and we'll get there. But when it comes to preaching, when it comes to speaking, when it comes to leading publicly, we need your voice. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to pray for, uh, I want to pray for women. I'm going to invite our ministry team up. I, <clears throat> I, really, I really can't emphasize enough that you know, Paul tells these women, he said, he says, he said, subject yourselves, submit yourselves. And I have a conviction about authority in this hour, biblical, godly authority in this hour. Uh, we need it. I know people have abused it. I know that, that there's been overreaches. I know that there's a massive conversation, especially in the charismatic church, but we need Godly authority. We need elders. We need godly elders. Men that aren't paid, men that aren't professional, men that you have them here. Some godly men. I was writing an email to, to Jeff this week. Jeff was doing some, some uh, stuff around our budget and finances, and I just said, I am so grateful that you're in my life, and I am fully submitted to you. I'm fully submitted to the elders, and it brings me such freedom and security to know that I have men of integrity that are helping govern this house that I'm submitted to. Beautiful. And I think this whole message is not about women ruling the roost. This isn't about, you used that last week. It just means that do whatever. It's not that. It's submit. Submit to the Holy Spirit. Submit to a local community. Come into the soil bury your life and allow the Lord in his grace and in his love and in his mercy to start to cultivate something inside of you and then manifest that. 
the beauty and the glory of Jesus in you and through you. And your gift doesn't have to force its way to a stage. You don't have to like twist someone's arm or network your way up. You just bury your life and you start to bear fruit. And I just wanna give women the freedom to bear, I think, the fruit that the gospel enables you to bear, whatever that is. If it's to be a homemaker and a, 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 a wife, that is, I think, probably the highest position in the house in regards to what you oversee and do with our little kids. It is a full-time job. It is nonstop. I've, my wife is that and a number of other things. She's superwoman to me. And so this isn't about like everyone needs to be a preacher. I'm not, I'm not advocating that. I'm just advocating that we all need to submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the authority of his word, get in the prayer room, get in a small group, start to make friends and watch what happens with your life. There's a grace that meets you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're a woman, I want you to stand up. I wanna pray for you. I just want you to lift your hands to the Lord and I wanna pronounce a blessing over you. I bless you tonight. I bless you in the name of Jesus. I bless you to prophesy. I bless you to speak the word of God I bless you to have a hunger for the word of God. I bless you to grow deep in the word of God. I bless you to be ignited, filled with the Holy Ghost and that the Lord would give you wings to soar in the winds of his spirit and anything that has felt restrictive, anything that has felt hindering, any, any time that, that maybe someone, you know, maybe with great intention put something over you that has limited you or made you feel excluded or a second-class citizen or whatever that looks like. I just wanna break that off of you in the name of Jesus and just plead his blood, plead his blood, plead his blood over you. I feel in my heart there's some of you that are Marys and Annas just to sit at the feet of God. I feel like there's intercessors in this room. I feel like there's gifts of discernment that the Lord is bestowing, just discerning of spirits, discerning of the seasons and the times, Lord, would you increase that in our house? And Father, I pray, I pray for godly wives. I pray that you would, you would raise just godly wives, Lord, wives of integrity. Proverbs 31 women, oh God. Proverbs 31 women, oh God. It says at the end of Proverbs, it says, oh, beauty is fleeting and charm is deceitful, but it says that a woman who fears Adonai shall be praised. And we praise you in the house of the Lord tonight for fearing our great God. It says she laughs at the days to come. <laughs> it says she's prepared in season and out. It actually says she, buy, she sees a field and buys it. She was an entrepreneur. She was something else. So I just bless you with that Proverbs 31 anointing. I bless the Deborahs in the house, the Esthers in the house. I bless Philip had four daughters that were prophetesses. I bless the prophetesses in the house. I bless the Phoebes that are called to run, that are called to run from city to city. I feel like there's some of you are missionaries. I bless you to be missionaries like Priscilla was. We just declare, Lord, no limitations, no hindrances. In Jesus' name, we throw off everything that entangles, Lord. We fix our eyes on Jesus to run this race and to run it well, to run it with integrity, to run it under your word, under the authority of your church. We love you. We honor you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hey.